We cannot have a conversation, a serious conversation, about the meaning of a biblical text until we are aware of the tricky ways in which we are uh, constructive participants in the interpretive conversation. Welcome to the Inverse Podcast, where we explore the good book and look at ways in which it can turn our worlds upside down. In this episode, Jared chats with Walter Brueggemann, a theologian, OT rock star, and the most influential Old Testament scholar alive. We're going to split this conversation up into two parts, just so that you have a chance to digest, with part two coming just around the corner in seven days. So let's jump into the conversation with Jared and Walter Brueggemann. Walter, thank you so much for your generosity of opening up your home and uh, being so hospitable, but also for um, my, it's your fault. I wouldn't be doing the things I'm doing <laughs> if it wasn't for your work, um, your witness, and the way that that has shaped me. So I'm really excited to have this time together. As we were joking last night, this is, it's, it's kind of like being in a, a dream for me. Uh, I was thinking that sitting downstairs last night and your cat walking in, and I was like, this, this is my spirit animal. <laughs> How is this possible? Um, um, so thank you. Well, I'm delighted to get to meet you and, uh, and to uh, be with you and uh, have this conversation. Out, out of interest, and I've never asked this before, but who would be the people for you that to meet would feel like what this feels like for me? Like who were your... Um, uh, were, are there people like, whether Heschel or, or others, that for, for you um, would be sitting amongst your, your heroes? Who, who, who would uh, they be? Well, Heschel certainly would be. Mm. Um, I never met Karl Barth. Wow. Yeah. Uh, I would like to meet uh, Martha Nussbaum, who teaches at Chicago. Huh. Uh, I would like to meet Robert Lifton who I think is probably retired from uh, Yale. Uh, so I've thought about that before, about who... Uh, uh, I think uh, the, the the question gets asked in the New York Times of people, who would you invite to a dinner party? Right, and yeah. So I've thought about that that way. And yeah. Did you ever meet Heschel? I heard him lecture once. I, didn't, I never met him. Incredible. Uh, he taught... Uh, at uh, Jewish Theological across the street from Union Seminary where I did my uh, doctor work. Yeah. And uh, my doctor father was James Meilenberg. And uh, when he gave his last lecture for, for retirement, uh, Heschel's students came over to hear it huh. and they all took their shoes off wow. outside the door before they went into the lecture room. Yeah, so, Acknowledgement uh, of holy ground, huh? Yeah, that's, yeah. That's incredible. Uh, yeah. The, the question I start with is, when do you first remember encountering the Bible? What, yeah. what role did that? Yeah. I, uh, I grew up in a, in a church home. My father was a pastor. And as early as I can remember, um, we had uh, family devotions after supper every night. Wow. Uh, we, we used a, a piece of denominational printed material uh, that always had a Bible verse and then a reflection on the Bible verse. 
And uh, that's my earliest memory. I wow. think we were doing that as early as I could possibly remember. In English or in German? Or? Uh, it was, it was uh, our version of it was English. It was also printed in German at the time because right. uh, uh, my parents' generation were transitional from uh, German to English. Hmm. So they, they, did, they did both for quite a while. Yeah. And those dinner time uh, discussions and meditations, were, were, was that something that was um, liberating? Uh, was that something that encouraged the turning of the world upside down? Or was it something that reinforced the world as it was? Or, or was it more complex than those two categories? No, I, I think it was uh, just assumed this is what we do because this is who we are. Hmm. Uh, uh, I don't remember it being uh, uh, revolutionary or subversive uh, because I don't think I knew enough then to grasp what we were reading. <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> so I, I think uh, I grew up with, uh, with fairly uh, conventional notions of Scripture uh my dad was of the generation of uh, of uh, social justice ministry uh and he didn't do that in very brave ways but uh, uh he was he was a faithful interpreter and a faithful practitioner and and the older i get the more i understand how much i have been shaped by him mm. Uh, in his uh, not very sophisticated faith. Hmm. Yeah. When did the Bible start to be something that was dangerous for you? Oh, I think not till seminary. Hmm. I don't think... Uh, I I, uh, I went to uh, uh, the same college that Randall and Richard Niebuhr went to, and the Niebuhrs were very much in the air. Yeah. And uh, I, I began in college to uh, become aware of uh, Niborian prophetic ethics. Mm -hmm. And uh, then in uh, seminary, but I went to seminary in the 50s, which was pretty tame. And I would say that my um, continued nurture and growth has been this uh, wave of liberation movements yeah. since then. Wow. Uh, and so I, I think uh, my uh, growing alertness and I think uh, attempts to move toward radicality have been ongoing for me. Hmm. Yeah. And in terms of um, the two brothers, if, if you were to choose a team, w w which of the two um, were, were dominant for, for you? Well, they did very different things, mm. even though they were both great scholars. And, and I think Reinhold Niebuhr was always more upfront and direct. Uh, Richard famously got asked why he didn't publish as much as Reinhold. And he said, because I think first. <laughs> so, but, but uh, you know, Richard, uh, Reinhold was very much working always with contemporary questions, whereas Richard was much more uh, reflective mm. and uh, uh, sort of removed from all that. So, yeah. 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 
Well, but and, it's very much my legacy. Yeah, yeah. It, it was wonderful for me wandering around, um, and I know you said you culled a lot of books, uh, but what was left and um, uh, seeing what was there, and um, that was that was incredible for me. Uh, what would you offer to others who are seeking to read the Bible? Maybe many who identify with the journey of the Bible being what has been there um, as part of since I've come to faith, but it not yet being the kind of force that does trouble and haunt and wake you in the middle of the night with uncomfortable questions um, right. rather than provide comfort. What lens would you offer or um, uh, what things, as you've swum in this like liberation move, yeah. um, would you encourage others to, um, to see or to the questions to ask as they read the scriptures? Well, as you know, I have been uh, putting a lot of energy uh, onto the Bible and economics lately, and uh, I would say uh, uh, always ask about what axe is being ground in mm. any particular biblical text. I believe that there are no innocent biblical texts and there are no <laughs> neutral in, uh uh, biblical text they are all texts of advocacy yes uh, and uh, I think we have too much learned in the western world uh, to read the bible as though it were innocuous and uh, neutral and uh, innocent and it is none of those and I think uh, if we were to learn to ask about the question of vested, vested interest in the text mm. Uh, we would become much more alert to identifying our own vested interest as readers of the text uh, because we do not read the Bible innocently or even handedly either. Uh, so I am very interested in having a, a conversation uh, about the ways in which our interpretive vested interests uh, contradict each other hmm. Uh, and uh, we got to get over our innocence, I think. And Walter, for, for those who have started on that journey and start to realise that there are different vested interests that yeah. go on in the Bible, yeah. Oh, like it, even with some of my friends who um, uh, are from other faiths who we've interviewed, or, or no faith that we've interviewed for the Inverse podcast. How? What advice would you give for for those who are realizing that there are different agendas going on here, and, and how do we choose? Uh, I ask you the question about which neighbor brother, but in terms of the, the different yeah. sides that are going on, how, how do we navigate some of that? Well, it's very complex and tricky, and there are no answers in the back of the book. <laughs> uh, so I have come to think that the first thing we do is to read the Bible through our vested interest. Hmm. The second level is that we read the Bible through our fears. Hmm. And I think the deepest level is that we read the Bible through our hurts. Wow. And that what one hopes for is that we will have increasing self-awareness so that we can see how our 
reading habits and reading practices uh, are filtered through uh, this stuff that undoubtedly skews every text. Mm. Because if we learn how to do that, we might learn to respect uh, and take seriously the vested interests, the fears, and the hurts of other people who read it differently from the way we do, and then we can have a conversation. We cannot have a conversation, uh, a serious conversation, uh, about the meaning of a biblical text until we are aware of the tricky ways in which we are uh, constructive participants in the interpretive conversation. Mm -hmm. So that's sort of my programmatic effort about myself. And I'm aware that even in starting the podcast, um, some criticism from some circles as it initially uh, took off was um, in the questions you're asking and this whole calling it inverse and to turn the world upside down, you're providing an agenda, like you're, you're, you're bringing a... And I'm pretty clear with that. Right. When people say... You asking questions about economics when it comes to the Bible is you bringing agenda. How do you enter that conversation? What do you say in response? Well, uh, if, if, if it is an opportunity to linger enough to have a serious engagement about that, uh, what I would want to say is that my life narrative requires me to come at it that way. Mm. Uh, because that is who I am, and that is the kind of reader that I am inescapably going to be. And then I would have to recite as much as my life narrative as anybody might want to hear, (laughs) which is not so much. (laughs) But then I also want to circle back and say that those who disagree with me and who read differently are also reading through their life narrative, even if they are unaware of it. Yeah. And then we can have a thicker engagement, Hmm. I think. One of the big influences on me has been James Cone. And he famously talked about where you do theology from will determine the theology you arrive at. Do you think in... um, in, in reading the Bible, there are certain places we should put ourselves to read it? Or is it, um, how do we, I'm thinking for myself, coming from one of the richest nations in the world, how do I own that in such a way where I'm going to read things um, from the courts of Pharaoh? Yes. Not from the pits where we make bricks. Right. Um, I'm much more comfortable in Herod's home than I am in the manger. Yeah. Um, how how do I navigate that in such ways that um, a, a desire for for love of God and love of neighbour can express itself in ways to yeah. <laughs> that are faithful to a crucifiable God? Well, I think as much as possible, we need to be in solidarity with and in conversation with people who read it in ways other than we read Mm. because of where they are situated. And this whole sequence of of, uh, 
liberations that we've been through, uh, by and large, uh, Bible reading has been a male enterprise. Mm. And everything has changed once women's reading of the Bible has been taken seriously. By and large, Bible reading has been a white project, or that's what we thought. Yeah. And as soon as we begin to take seriously the reading from racial, ethnic minorities or whatever, mm-hmm. everything changes, mm-hmm. et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Uh, so the, uh, the reading in a homogeneous community, uh, uh, this may be an overstatement, but I'll, I'll make it, I think it's inescapably idolatrous. Wow. And the history of Western interpretation is that we have simply assumed, I myself did that for a long time, we've assumed that white male reading is objective reading. Hmm. So that when the when the first feminists began to get visible about Bible reading, uh, we objective white male readers dismissed their reading as advocacy not being aware that our reading was also advocacy, but it had become normative so long mm. that it no longer felt like advocacy. Wow. Yeah. And that's what you mean in terms of being able to understand our own fears and uh, our own hurts. That's right. And yeah, that's, that's incredible. You mentioned practice of reading scripture. Is it too personal? Can I ask you? You tell the Australian to nick off if it's not appropriate. But what's your own practice when it comes to in- engaging the scriptures? Well, for my uh, long years of work, uh, my my Bible reading was essentially uh, closely linked to my research and writing and mm-hmm. teaching. Uh, but that always felt to me very much like a devotional process. Mm. Uh, I, I think I didn't, uh, I didn't split uh, my academic work from my uh, own spiritual work. It felt like a, a whole to me. It may, have, it may have been some self-deception about that, but that's, that's what I think. And I think that's felt by your reception as well. Like f- for me, um, maybe with the with um, Heschel being an exception as well, there is something in reading your work that actually calls for worshipful responses. Like, um, and I think at, at home when um, meeting with Aboriginal scholars, you're someone that is held in really high regard because of the way it connects. And yet, that is also true with friends from Hillsong and the way that they. Um, engage you at work. And it's true of uh, high church Anglicans at home as well. There is a poetic sensibility um, that for for such an exceptional scholar, your language doesn't fit that pattern, but surprises like the scriptures surprise. How come you're allowed to get away with that? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I... I, um... Uh, just say two things. First of all, it took me it took me some years uh, to figure out that I was going to be a scholar for the church and not for the guild. Hmm. 
And uh, in the early days of my uh, teaching work, you took a kind of a beating for that. And there are there have continued to be some very strong scholars who never thought that I did real scholarship. Uh, and you know, that would show up in book reviews and stuff like that. The positive thing uh, that I want to say is that I discovered, and I don't know how long it had been going on. I, I, I've written for my long years of teaching, I've written everything longhand mm. before I uh, got it typed. Uh, and what I discovered is that I was saying everything out loud, uh, very quietly, to myself as I wrote. And I think I was hearing it as I wrote it. Wow. I didn't set out to do that. I just discovered that that's what I was doing. Uh, and I think uh, I think that made some difference about uh, how it, how it turned out in terms of the the kind of prose that, that resulted. And and maybe some of that homiletic quality of your work as well. That there, there is a performative. That's right. You can read your work aloud, and people lean forward instead of yeah fall asleep which is which of course is the, the same quality that caused some people to think it wasn't scholarship wow and of course heschel yes is something like that only much better <laughs> yeah we'll be the judge of that <laughs> <laughs> yeah um instead of talking about it in the abstract i'd love to actually do it with you. Um, Walter, would you lead us in a, a Bible study? You can go anywhere yes. at, at all I, uh, and, and help us to read the Bible in ways that turns our world upside down. I will uh, do that off the top of my head. Now you're just showing off. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's not uh, de novo. <laughs> uh, or as they say in The Sound of Music, nothing comes from nothing. <laughs> nothing oh, ever will. <laughs> Uh, Where am I turning? I'm going to talk about Exodus 16. Hmm. Uh, And all uh, Bible reading for me uh, begins with the Exodus story in Exodus 1 to 15. It is the paradigmatic story for Jews that the Jews re-perform in Passover and I believe that uh, Jesus is uh, the reperformance of the Exodus narrative. Yes. Mm-hmm. And I believe that the Exodus narrative is waiting to be reperformed among us. So that's my mm. base. And uh, as we all know, what happens in the Exodus narrative is that Pharaoh is a very uh, exploitative labor boss. Uh, propelled by greed that is grounded in scarcity. Behind the Exodus narrative, uh, in the book of Genesis, uh, we are told that Pharaoh had two nightmares about uh, lean cows, fat cows, and bad wheat and good wheat. And they were both nightmares about scarcity. Mm. So there is something ironic that the guy who had the most 
had the nightmares about scarcity, uh, and therefore uh, the goal of his regime was to gain more land and more grain and more bricks at the expense of cheap labor. Mm. So that's what I think you find when you open the Bible. You find a regime of greed that is propelled by a sense of scarcity. Now, as we all know, the Exodus narrative is the story of those slaves that that supply of cheap labor uh, being uh, emancipated by the inscrutable power of God uh, to live outside of and beyond the control of Pharaoh. And in Exodus 15, uh, Miriam and the other uh, slave women uh, take tambourines and they dance free at last, free at last, thank God Almighty, free at last. So in Exodus 15, the Exodus story is completed and they make a move into the wilderness beyond Egypt. Now the wilderness is uh, marked, as near as I can tell, by two features. First of all, it is a zone of life that is beyond the reach and administration of Pharaoh. Mm. Wow. Pharaoh did not want anybody to know that there was any zone beyond his reach, Mm. but there was. Second feature of the wilderness uh, is that it has no viable life support system. It looked at the edge of the wilderness like it was going to be a place of death. So we are told at the end of Exodus 15 that they entered the wilderness and when they stepped into chapter 16... They stepped into the wilderness, two verses, and they said, let's go back. (laughs) They found the wilderness too ominous and dangerous and threatening. And in that moment, they calculated that Pharaoh's slavery was better than the wilderness. Mm which is to say that Pharaoh has an amazing grip on our imagination Mm. and keeps drawing us back in to the regime of scarcity that depends on cheap labor. Wow. But Moses is uh, determined, and so he urges them. I, I get the impression when I read Exodus 16 that they backed into the wilderness uh, looking back to the pyramids, looking back to Pharaoh, looking back to the flesh pots of Egypt, looking back to the fact, well, we didn't have food. Yeah. 
And then in, this is chapter 16, in verse 10, apparently they turn around and they face the wilderness. And the text says, they saw the glory of God. Mm. Who knew? Mm. Who knew (laughs) that the glory of God would be present in the wilderness because they had assumed that the glory of God was coterminous with the glory of Pharaoh. Wow. Hence the looking back. Looking back with wistfulness for Mm. all that had been lost. And I've heard a lot of preachers make fun of that. I've heard a lot of preachers um, ridicule the people coming out of slavery. And yet my experiences as a pastor with people coming out of prison or young people trying to get out of gangs or with refugees living, leaving a, a conflict zone is I've been able to see in them what goes on in me in a lot more subtle ways that the safety of the horror, at least I know what was coming. That's right. And I can expect the routine of that. Yeah. And when you talk about economics, I find it so difficult. And I've been trying since I was about 20 years old living in a Christian community to even think my way out of a neoliberal capitalist. And That's every right. time there's a little experiment that might point towards hope, um, somebody wants to turn it into something we can sell. And I see that stuff in myself all the time. That's right. Like, um, how do we, when you say that the glory of the Lord shows up in the wilderness, maybe I, I just want to note before some of us like so quickly make fun of that, that who we're talking to is Jared. Like I, re- I relate to that desire. Yeah. To, yes, exactly. Um, our, 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 almost all of us, our imagination uh, is in bondage mm. to Pharaoh. Mm. That's where the jobs are. That's where uh, safe, predictable, familiar meaning is. That's where the viable technologies are. Mm. That's where all of the Visible potential for a viable life are available. Mm. And I think for Christians, uh, the crucifixion of Jesus is the counterpoint to the wilderness. Who would have mm. thought that the, that the crucified one who lived outside the zone of the Roman Empire mm. could be the source of an alternative life? It's astonishing. Hmm. I like Joseph's model better. If, if, if we can provide some of the um, interpretation in a scarcity and be in a position of, of power, that sounds right. a lot better than crucifixion. That's right. It does. So, so Joseph, uh, uh, in the Genesis narrative, he simply had to forget who he was and signed on with Pharaoh 
uh, and uh, helped his own people become slaves because he was getting ahead. It's a perfect neoliberal strategy for autonomous advancement. Mm. And uh, like as a pastor, the kind of pressures that often don't even know how to name, the, the, the levels of depression amongst um, clergy in Australia is massive. And uh, the pressures to simply uh, create a large crowd, and that is what success is. That's right. Um, and to never consider any of the questions that your work forces me to continue yep. to, to, to look at. Well, a large, a large crowd is a criterion of Pharaoh. So it's meeting Pharaoh's expectations. Yep. So when we find ourselves in verse 10 with this strange kind of glory and we turn around, how, how are those of us like me who are formed by Pharaoh's desires and have learned to desire what Pharaoh desires, even while adding Bible verses to it? The Solomon option. Yes, yes. <laughs> Um, what are we to do with the rest of Exodus 16? Well, the question, it seems to me the question of, of Exodus 16 is, can the glory that takes up residence in um, the wilderness deliver food? Because mm. glory is more the dam if it doesn't deliver food. Yeah. So as you know, what happens after verse 10 is that the Israelites engage in a lot of bitching about hunger. Mm. And Moses says, don't bitch at me. This is not my idea. (laughs) So he passes the bitching along to God. (laughs) And it turns out that the God of glory, maybe reluctantly, is the God of bread. Mm. And that's a connection that the church hasn't wanted to think about. That the God of glory is the God of bread. Which is odd, considering so many of us gather around a table and celebrate communion, and yet we're blind to everything that's going on in terms of... That's exactly right. This is an economic table. This this is another imagination. This is going to be another people. Well, I would say we we have recast the table in Pharaoh's categories in terms of sin and salvation. Wow. Rather than abundant bread. Wow. Because who, who, Pharaoh never objects to the processing of sin and salvation. (laughs) So, what does it look like to turn and face the glory in who we are as a people for those who do make it weekly and do gather around a table, how do we start to confess our fears and name our hurts that blind us to a God who leads us out into the desert when what we want is the fast food, fatty, sugar-rich, drive-through reality of what Pharaoh provides, and and it feels pretty good. Yes. Well... uh... Uh, it's a new thought to me what you what you trigger, but I think that uh, success in um, 
Pharaoh's regime depends uh, to some extent on performing an endless charade. Mm. And what happens in the wilderness, by contrast, is that it is a zone of honesty in which Israel can pray its genuine reality of need and fear. I think uh, genuine need and genuine fear have no currency in Pharaoh's regime because Pharaoh just says, suck it up. Wow. And uh, what then happens when they are able to be honest about fear and need uh, is that the God of glory turns out to be a God of grace. Hmm. And they get bread, they get meat, quail, and they get water. They get all the basic food groups. Mm. So that they discover to their surprise that they have moved from the regime of scarcity to the regime of abundance, which is completely counterintuitive because it feels like Pharaoh ought to be the source of abundance. Hmm. But of course, Pharaoh is only the source of abundance for the 1%. Yes. Pharaoh is the source of scarcity for the, what, 90% or I don't know how high that number goes. Yeah. But he is, Pharaoh is a proponent of scarcity because out of his nightmares, he believes that there is not enough to go around. Mm. And what is experienced in the wilderness of Exodus 16 is there's plenty to go around and it says everybody gathered what they need. Some gathered a little, some gathered a lot, and everybody was satisfied. Mm. But when when we're still trapped in our fears and in our hurts, we will take these texts and we will add to an imagination of scarcity the language of abundance, and we come out the other side with the prosperity gospel. That's correct. That's right. So, and, it, and it's a lie because the prosperity gospel uh, is really uh, inordinate, pro- inordinate well-being for individual persons. So prosperity, as in that usage, prosperity is quite unlike abundance. Huh. Abundance is a communal phenomenon, all gathered what they needed. In the prosperity gospel, I gather what I need, Mm. and I don't care about the others. Unless it trickles down. That's correct, which it never does. Yeah. That's right. Hey, David here. Thanks for listening. We look forward to having you join us in a week's time for part two of this conversation with Walter Brueggemann. 
And if you want to, come join us at patreon.com slash inverse and continue the conversation with the community there or share with us how the good book is turning your world upside down. We look forward to hearing from you.